Wow. No more tears, no no more pain, no more fears. There will be a day. Until that day comes, we have this life to live. And this morning we want to talk about things that cause tears, things that cause pain, and things that cause fear as we live this life, as we walk on this earth. Those things are trials, and those trials come in different shapes and different sizes and different manifestations. And we want to talk about those trials this morning, how they affect us, and what God desires to do in us through those trials. We're looking in James chapter 1, starting in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That we may be perfect and complete. Lacking in nothing. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. Lord, I praise you, God. I praise you for this time this morning, Lord. I thank you for the reminder, Lord, that this life is only temporary. That this life, the trials, the tribulations of this life, they will pass, Lord. And remind us this morning and teach us this morning how you use those trials, Lord, not to punish us, not to cause us harm, but to make us more and more like your son. Lord, you love us too much to leave us where we are. Lord, guide us through this text this morning to apply it to our lives, to see what you have for us in this life and how the goal is eternal with you, to be in eternity with you, Lord. There will be a day, Lord. There will be a day of no more tears, no more pain, and no more fears. I praise you for that promise, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What are trials? We've talked about trials a little bit already. What are they? What are trials? You look at the Strong's definition of the word translated here, trials, it says, a putting to proof, a putting to test. Um, As we look at trials, there's, there's two different realms of this word, two different ways that this word is used in Scripture. And in this book that we're studying alone, It's relative to our minds, whether it affects us in our spirit, in our minds, or whether it affects our body or externally. And it can affect us from within, mainly in the form of temptations. And we're going to get to that as we go just a little farther in chapter 1. In verses 13 through 18 here in a few weeks, when we get to that, we're going to talk about temptations. And you see that he has a step-by-step Plan, plan, or it's a reality of how temptations turn into sin. And I'm looking forward to going through that. That scripture has always meant a great deal to me. That's one use of this word, one realm of using this word is in, the, in, the, in our spirits, in the temptations, how we are tempted into doing things. What we're looking at this morning is the word, this word being used in relation to the things that affect us from without, from, with, from outside of our spirit. Now, that can still be physical things that affect our body as far as sickness and things like that. But it also is tragedies that face us. Just like this week, the death of Ivan Stahl, the unexpected passing of his, of his life and how that hurt the family, how that hurt those who knew him well, those who were friends with him. This afternoon, 
as we come and support the family, the Graber family, in the loss of their brother, in what we consider before his time. You know, those are tragedies. Those are hardships that we face. Maybe it's financial matters that we face. We, we know that this world, we have struggles when we just can't make ends meet sometimes. And we know some of it in this world, but we hear in other worlds, and I want to say, give a plug to Chris. He says he's not going to be here the next couple Sunday mornings. Next Sunday evening, he has consented to give us a program and share a little more about what they're seeing in the mission field and some of the needs that are there. And I'll, I'll say again, we don't know what hardship is in this world. We don't know what it is to, to be without physically or financially. We, we have our version of it. But I encourage you to, to leave next Sunday night open to come and hear what the Lord has to give us through Chris. And I'm looking forward to that myself. Another way that we are, that our, that we are tested is through relationships. And it's a big way that we are tested. And how we respond to other people and the way other people treat us. Those, that's another form of an, of an outward trial that we face. How do we know that this word and this verse is being used in relation to the things that affect, us from, that affect us from without? Well, it's preceded with the words, you meet, which would lead us to believe that it is things that come from without. It's things that meet us. And, you know, even our physical ailments, they meet us. We, it's not things that we create in our minds. It's actual broken legs or, or cuts or colds or flus. I know we've been through a big flu season. Those are all trials. Those are all things that test us and cause us to turn toward God, to turn toward something. Because guess what? They're things that are out of our control. We can have two responses to trials. We can be bitter. We can shut down. We can look for someone to blame. Or we can do what James says to do. James says to count it all joy when you face trials of many kinds. When, you're, when you come up against them. Well, what is joy? We talked about joy when we were in Galatians. And basically the definition we came up then, with then was happiness despite our circumstances. It means it doesn't matter what we're facing. We still have a joy because we're resting in the Lord and what He has told us He is and what He will do. Joy in the fact that God is who He says He is and He does not change. You say, but trials are hard. And they are. The things that we face in this world, some of the things we've listed, those are hard things to face. And how can you be joyous in facing those things? Well, it's all about perspective. We've talked about perspective before also. We talked about it with idols in one case. And we use the words temporal and eternal. You know, we hold on to idols in this world because we have a temporary, a temporal perspective. And we make it about the things this world has to offer us, like finances, like relationships. And we are unable to step back and have an eternal perspective and to see that it's about God. And it's about our lives for eternity. And when we face trials, if we can't step back and have an eternal perspective, we're going to get bogged down in the trials. And we are not going to have joy in the trials. I went to this text before, and I'll probably go to it again. It has always meant a great deal to me, but I want to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and we'll be starting in verse 7. And it's Paul, and he's relating the, his journey, basically, through, a thorn in, through the thorn in his flesh. And he says, So to keep me from being too elated, 
by the surpassing greatness of the revelations. Remember, Paul is the man who wrote half of the New Testament. Paul is the man who gives us a great deal of wisdom in our scripture, in the Bible that we have before us today. In, in the midst of these great revelations, God gave him a thorn in his flesh. He said, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Paul goes on to say, three times I pleaded with the Lord to remove this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul says he's content. And again, if you've heard me share on this text before, we don't really know what his thorn was. And I believe that was intentional. I don't think he wanted us to be able to dismiss it out of hand. Well, he doesn't know what I'm going through. And he gives this whole list of calamities and hardships and just kind of runs the gamut of the things that could happen to somebody. And he says, despite of all these things, he rejoices because in these things, when he is weak, God is strong. And he is strong because he's strong by drawing on the faith of Jesus, that he has in Jesus Christ. Other translations, instead of saying, saying his content, they'll say, takes pleasure. Takes pleasure in calamities takes pleasure in persecutions how do you do that why he goes on to say and he uses the word therefore and when you see the word therefore in scripture it means this is why this is how this is what i do he says therefore i will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses why so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He knows that he can't do it in his own strength. He got it. He understood it. Obviously, like we said, he wrote half of the New Testament. And he wrote these words to testify what God had brought him through. He had the correct perspective on life. He knew it wasn't about him. He knew that it was about glorifying Christ. But we know, even from these, these verses, that he was human also. What did he say? He asked three times for God to remove it. Before he, fi- before he finally dug in and said, Okay, God, I see what you have for me in this. What a beautiful gift he gave us in writing that down. He could have just told us how blessed he was by these trials, but he gives us a glimpse into his humanity and says, I asked him three times to get rid of it. These things are hard. Paul's acknowledging that when he he tells us that he asked three times to have that removed. How do we get there? How do we get where Paul was? How do we get to the point where we take pleasure in our trials? This sounds so foreign, doesn't it? Because like we said, trials hurt. Trials are not fun. Well, the first thing I want to encourage you this morning is not to dismiss the hardships. Don't dismiss the pain that you feel in the midst of your trials. 
And that is for yourself, and that is when you're helping others through their trials. You know, our temptation would be to jump straight to the, oh, God has this, you need to just get over it. Basically, suck it up. No, their pain is real. Your pain is real. Acknowledge that your pain is real. Be compassionate with others and understand with yourself. Don't condemn yourself for having questions, for, having, for feeling pain, for having some fear, for having some anxiety. Don't, don't condemn yourself for that. Acknowledge that the pain that you're suffering is real. Christ was compassionate to those in the midst of their suffering. One example we have is in John chapter 11, starting in verse 33. And this is immediately following the death of Lazarus when he came into uh, the town there where Lazarus was, and it was four days after he had passed. And Lazarus' sisters were just distraught, and Christ came into the scene. And he says, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And then that's where it goes on to say that Jesus wept. Why was he weeping? He knew that Lazarus was going to be raised from the dead. He knew what was going to happen. But he was in agony for the pain that this family was feeling. He knew that their trial was real. He knew that their suffering was real. And he acknowledged that pain. He identified with it. Why was he troubled? Why was he troubled? He wanted to help them. He wanted to relate to them. He was being a shepherd to them. He was acknowledging their pain and was walking with them in their despair. But then he went on to demonstrate his power to them. He didn't leave them there. I want to encourage you, don't get lost in your despair. Acknowledge the pain, acknowledge the despair, but don't get lost in it. How do you keep from getting lost in it? Again, it's about perspective. We need to step back. And this is where the body of Christ can help. We talked to, I talked to you a little bit about when you see someone else in the midst of a trial, don't jump straight to the facts. Recognize their pain. And as fellow brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, we need to be prepared to come alongside each other when we're hurting and be in prayer for each other. Be ready to speak truth when God prompts us to speak truth. We need to pray for those individuals and then we need to have an attitude of prayer ourselves. When we're in the midst of a trial, we need to go to God and ask God, what are you showing me in this? What is in this, Lord? Why is this happening to me? And we need to be prepared to listen to what he has to tell us. And when we went to God and we pray and we ask him for this guidance, then we need to rest and trust in the fact that God is sovereign. God is in control. I've said it many times. I don't think, no translations that I have use the word coincidence in Scripture. I don't believe there are any coincidences. I believe God knows every detail. He knows what's going to happen. Yes, we have free will. He knows what our choices are going to be. And we're going to be held accountable for those choices. But He allows, by His sovereignty, these things to come into our lives for purposes to mature us, to grow us, to teach us. And we need to rest in that fact and trust that God has a purpose in the things that He allows to come our way. 
We need to open our spiritual eyes and be looking for God instead of being wrapped up and consumed in the circumstances that surround us. That's another step to living in victory and allowing the trials that we face to have their full effect in our lives. We need to look for God in the midst of our lives. So often we go through life resting on our own abilities and our own talents and we don't look for God until something goes wrong. And then we don't really know how to look for God. But we do. We need to have our eyes open and looking for God in, in every situation that comes our way, every, circumstances, every circumstance that happens. Randy Alcorn had this quote. He said, Adversity itself doesn't cause joy. Our joy comes in the expectation of adversity's byproduct, which is godly character. You see, when James says, Count it all joy, He's saying, count it all joy in what God is doing in your life through this trial. Not in the trial itself, but in the effects, in the changes that God is making in your character by the trials that he is allowing into your life. Paul knew what his thorn was doing to him. He knew it was more about Christ and less about him. He knew that this was about God making him more and more like Christ. That's why he was able to take pleasure in his thorn, whatever it was. It wasn't pleasure in the thorn itself, but it was pleasure in what the thorn was doing to his character. Pleasure in what God was using that thorn to change in him. God uses our trials to make us more like Christ. To weed out things that are contrary to the nature of Christ, to the nature of God. Those things are sin. Those are agreements that we make with the enemy. Things that are contrary to the nature of God. That's why he allows trials to weed those things out. That's where we get to the effect. The effect of trials. In verse 3 it says, For you know the testing of your faith, basically the exercising of your faith. An exercise, if you think about it, you don't just go run a mile and decide you're ready to run a marathon. It's a conditioning. It's building up. You don't just go lift 20 pounds and then decide you're going to be a bodybuilder and lift three times your body weight. There's a building up. And in our spiritual lives, we have to crucify the flesh. Our, our flesh has to be crucified. God wants to do that by His grace and by His power. And that's where trials come in. He uses trials to crucify our flesh. And what that does, what trials do in verse 3, we know that it says it produces steadfastness. Steadfastness in other translations, it uses the word patience. And the definition of the root word there is a cheerful or hopeful endurance. And that tells me that this steadfastness is so much more than outward obedience. You know, many of you are here in the pews this morning because you're supposed to be, you're Christians. I pray that you're here for more than that reason, but all across the nation, all across the world, there's people in pews, people in pews because they're Christians, that's where they're supposed to be. And then sometimes, in some cases, they're not happy about it. Have you ever heard the story about the little boy who didn't want to sit down? And his parents told him, you will sit down. So he sat down. And under his breath, he sat there and he said, 
I may be sitting down, but I'm standing up on the inside. How often do we live our lives that way? How often are we standing up on the inside? We look like we're living a submissive life, but we're just doing enough to get by. We don't really want to do it, but we'll do it just because we're supposed to. Our trials have the effect of producing true steadfastness when we open our hearts to what God is trying to tell us through it. They have the effect of producing patience in us. Looking at this verse in the message paraphrase, he, he writes it this way. He says, you know that under pressure, your faith, your faith life is forced into the open and shows its true colors. This made me think immediately of the old uh, phrase, when you get backed into a corner. You know, what's, what are animals going to do when they get backed into a, into a corner? They're going to fight. They're going to strike. What do we do as humans when we're backed into a corner, when we feel like we don't have any choices? Our real selves come out. Our true colors show. And that's what trials can do to us. How do we respond when we are under the pressure of trials? What are your true colors? What have you seen in yourself when things get tough, when things get tight? What do we do with those colors when they're exposed, when you see them, when you see yourself for what you are? Well, one of our instincts in our flesh is to make excuses. Well, I, I maybe reacted that way, but it's because of this circumstance or this person said such and such. If they hadn't said that, I wouldn't have responded that way. No, you responded because of what was in your heart. Yes, that was the antagonist that brought that out, but the reality is it was there. And it needed to be brought out. What are you going to do with it when it's brought out? Are you going to blame it on someone else? Are you going to show a desire, show a fruit of the Spirit working in your life that you want to change that? That you don't want that to be your response the next time that you're backed into a corner? The reality is you can't change that response under your own power. You cannot change by sheer will. We talked about that all the way through the book of Galatians. It's not by law, it's by grace. And grace is a divine influence upon the heart. That's what changes us. By allowing the work of Christ to be fulfilled in our hearts. Remember what the work of Christ is. All this fallen world, this sin, this wretchedness, Christ took it upon Himself. It separated Him from His Father when He hung on that cross. He took the full wrath of our wretchedness. And He died, was placed in that grave. And in three days was resurrected in victory over death. And in that victory over death, He gave us power over sin. Power to be purged. Power to be redeemed of those not-so-good colors, those true colors that show when we are faced with trials, when we're faced with frustrations. It's only by the grace of God that we can change. I encourage you this morning, when your sin is exposed, when your true colors show, don't make excuses. Don't blame it on your bloodline. Don't blame it on your heritage. Don't blame it on your circumstances. Don't blame it on other people. Understand that God has exposed something in your heart that He wants to take from you. That He wants to relieve you of. That's His desire. See, the reality is we know that our trials have reached their full effect, their full purpose, 
when we are no longer pointing a finger at someone else. Not even God. Let me say that again. We know our trials have reached their full effect when we are no longer pointing a finger at anyone else. Not even God. How many times have you seen someone in the middle of a trial and they say, how could God do this? The reality is when you know the nature of God, He didn't do it to embarrass you or to crush you. He's allowed trials in your life to bring out your true colors so that they can be purged from you. And that you can live a victorious life over those things that have you in bondage. So when we are blaming it on everybody else, we're not to the end of ourselves yet. And that's where God wants us to be. And they're at the end of ourselves and fully dependent on Him. That brings us to the fulfillment. We want the perfection. We want the completeness. We want to lack nothing, as verse 4 says. But what do we do when we face a trial? We experience some freedom, don't we? When we are walking with God, as the trial begins, we start to see some of those true colors come to the surface, and we take them to the cross. And we start to see some freedom, and we start to think, okay, we've got this under control. We've got it. What James is warning, of, warning us of here is that we'll fall back if we don't sustain, if we don't allow the trial to be sustained in our lives. Well, what, what happens when we fall back? Well, basically, we pull up short. We don't allow the full effect of the trial upon our lives. We take it back into our own hands. And I want to use a physical example this morning. I, don't, I know we have nurses and nurse practitioners and doctors here this morning, so if my science comes up a little short, you can tell me about it later. But if you think about antibiotics, and you've heard in the news that we've created these super bugs, these super bacteria because of the overuse and the misuse of antibiotics, well, what are they talking about? Well, you know, when you go to the doctor for an infection, he gives you, they give you an antibiotic, and they give you a full prescription, and they give you specific instructions. Take every one of these pills. Don't stop when you start feeling better. Why do they tell you that? Because when you start taking that antibiotic, the weaker microbes in the bacteria, they die quickly. And the stronger ones, they can sustain the antibiotic a little longer. So they'll survive. But as those weaker bacteria are killed off, we do start to feel a little better. So we get absent-minded and we stop taking the antibiotic or we decide, oh, we feel better. I don't need to bother with taking these anymore or we'll save these for the next time we get sick and I don't have to go back to the doctor. I can just use the rest of them then. But what we've done is we've killed off the weak bacteria and left strong ones there to take root again. So what happens? We stop taking our antibiotic and then a week later the infection's back and we don't understand why. And guess what? The next time it takes a stronger antibiotic to get rid of it because what reproduced were the stronger bacteria. And they took over. And then it takes a stronger antibiotic to get rid of them. I hope you understand the analogy. Because what we do when we face trials, the obvious sins go first. The ones that we know, yeah, those are sin. Yeah, I I shouldn't have been doing that. And those go, and we experience a certain degree of freedom. We, the, some of the pressure is relieved. So what do we do? We pull up short. We walk away from the trial because we have options to do that. But when we do that, the habitual sins, they're deeply rooted. And they take some time sometimes to purge, to be crucified in our flesh. 
So when we pull up short from the trials that we're facing, when we don't allow them to take their full effect, what's going to happen? We're going to end up back in the same rut in just a matter of time. And what we do with these habitual sins, these deeply rooted sins, we learn how to cover them up so the next trial, it's going to be a little harder to expose them. Because from the last trial, we learned a little bit of how to cover them up and how to uh, ignore them. And oftentimes, we've done them so long that they don't seem like sin. We ourselves don't even acknowledge that they're sin. They're still sin. But when we don't allow those trials to take their full effect, then we allow those habitual sins to be rooted even deeper in our lives and in our hearts. You see, the reality is, we have so many outs, and especially in this world that we live in, the country that we live in. We have so many ways to avoid our trials. We talked about finances a little bit earlier, and what do we do? We don't have enough money to do what we want. So what do we do? We borrow money. Credit card debt is just phenomenally high. And you would have thought we learned our lesson back in 08. You know what caused the last major stock market crash that we had, the the collapsing of our economy? Too much debt. We were spending more than we earned. We were spending above our means and the bubble finally popped. And the reality is if if we would just learn how to live within our means, there'd be no bubble to pop. So because of the state that we're in in this, in this, in this country, we don't allow the, the trials of having to make things stretch. We have ways to get around letting that affect us. So we do. And then we have to learn an even harder lesson. We may have to lose our house. Whatever financial circumstance there may be. We may also face, in our hardships that we face, And we'll go back to relationships. We'll say somebody, you know, we're in the middle of this hardship. I lost my job because of somebody else. And I I may have this material loss because of somebody else. Instead of looking into that hardship and saying, what's God trying to tell me through this? What do we do? We go try to recover. We look for retribution. We even stoop to taking people to court to sue to get our money back. And they may have very well wronged us. But is that what Scripture tells us to do? What is God trying to tell us? Is He trying to purge something from our hearts by what we're facing? That's what a trial is all about. That's what we've been talking about. Another way the trials come to us is through relationships. What happens when our friends do us wrong? When when they say something that we didn't like or maybe they even betray us? Yeah, there's a certain amount of discernment we have to use in the friends that we choose. But we also have to understand that people are human and the way that they respond to us are means that God is using to change us. But what do we choose to do? Oh, we'll just get new friends. We'll just move on if that's the way they're going to be. And it may be that it's just exposing something in our hearts, like we said, that needs to be exposed. But instead of addressing what God is maybe trying to point out in our lives through the relationships that we have, we just go find new friends. It may require us to get a new job. Whatever it may, however we will go about finding new friends. And we're avoiding what God is actually trying to expose in our hearts. You see, we have all kinds of ways to pull out of the trials. Scripture says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. 
You see, God intended relationships to mature us. But what do we do as human beings? We tend to bail out when things get tough. Marriage is the ultimate relationship that he brings us to us. There's a book that I read earlier, well, it was last year, beginning of last year, called The Meaning of Marriage by Timothy Keller. And he brought in a perspective of what marriage is today and what God intended marriage to be. I ask you this morning, why do people get married? Well, the world says it's about us. Do you know what God intended marriage for? Like I said, the world tries to tell us it's about us, but what they've done is they've made it an investment. You know what an investment is? You put something in expecting a certain amount of return on your investment. The world has made marriage about almost a business partnership. Now, I'm getting married because of what you have to offer me in the things that I want, in the things that I think I need. I'm only putting in if I'm guaranteed a return. And that ends up in some pretty shaky marriages, doesn't it? God intended marriage as an agent of change. You see, it is the ultimate relationship. We actually make a promise. We make a covenant. So people, and sadly not as much as they used to, but people have a greater uh, drive to make the marriage succeed, a greater, greater drive to keep the couple together. And it's hard sometimes. Because you're two different people. And what do you do when you go into the marriage? You go in expecting to change each other. I'm going to change that person. And the reality is when we go into a marriage relationship, when we go into any relationship, God's intention and our desire when we are living by understanding His character is how is God going to change me through this? What does God have for me in this? God uses the shortcomings of our spouse. God uses my shortcomings to change my wife. God uses the shortcomings of everyone that we come in contact with throughout a day to bring out our true colors. Again, not to embarrass us, not to discourage us, but to improve us, to make us in the image of His Son. Satan wants us to depend on other things besides God. And he has us to the point through his lies that we don't think we have to deny our flesh. We'll look at life as what's in it for us, and it's led to some pretty miserable things in this world today. You know, we're facing abortion. We're facing same-sex marriage because people say, well, it's just natural. Well, the works of the flesh lead to death. The flesh is natural. Yeah, some of these things are of our flesh. And God wants to crucify our flesh. By the trials we come through when we turn to Him, He wants to purge these tendencies from our flesh. He wants to make us in the image of His Son. So to use it as an excuse of it's just the way I am, God wants to change who you are. He wants to meet you where you are, but He doesn't want to leave you where you are. We look at life as what can we get from it? And then to satisfy our flesh instead of how is God going to change us and make us more in His image. We're going to face trials, brothers and sisters. It's unavoidable. We can try to lock ourselves up and try to avoid trials. I read an article this week of a, of a gentleman who his marriage went bad and his wife rejected him for another man. 
And he locked himself up in his apartment for weeks. Didn't go out any more than he absolutely had to. Until one day he decided he's tired of fearing rejection. So he set himself up to where he would go out and get rejected. He decided one day that he would just walk up to a perfect stranger in the parking lot of a grocery store and say, I need a ride across town. Will you take me? He didn't really need a ride. I don't know what he would have done if the guy would have took him up on it. But the guy rejected him. And he did that day after day, asked people different questions, things, ridiculous things that he knew they would reject him on. He would ask for ridiculous refunds on things or just whatever he could just so he would get rejected. Now, to me, that's a bit extreme. I don't, know if that's, I don't believe that's what God's asking us to do, but it's an example of trials. You know, we, we run from our trials because it hurts, because it really does hurt. But if we would just turn into our trials and allow the work to be done that Christ has to be done, wants to work in our hearts for our good, the result would be an amazing blessing, an amazing amount of freedom, and we wouldn't deal with those struggles any longer if we truly allowed God to purge them from our hearts. And again, those trials are not going to be pleasant. But they are going to change us. And change sometimes hurts. But God intends it for our good. Will these trials make us more like Christ? That is His intention when we are truly seeking Him in the midst of them. Will we allow these trials to be worked to their completion in our hearts? The completion that He has intended for us. Will we, as James instructed us, be able to count it all joy when we face trials of many kinds? Is that your heart this morning? Is that your desire? Do you understand the benefit of trials? Are you prepared to take pleasure in them as Paul did? Because he saw what was coming. He saw what God was doing and he rejoiced in that truth and in that promise. Let's pray.